Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Citico, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Citico, and today we're talking King Street. We're ensconced upstairs at the Virgin Money Lounge, overlooking the street, and I'm here with Jonathan Schofield, historian, editor, tour guide, and all-round legend of Manchester. A few weeks ago, the City Centre Business Improvement District put on the second King Street Festival, which celebrated the retail, restaurants, and heritage of the street. And we thought it would be a nice idea to put some of that history down on tape, or the digital equivalent, at least. Jonathan, we're going to work our way down the street in this podcast, but let's start with the really obvious. Who was the king after whom the street was named? I wish we knew. It's a bit of a mystery, this one. It's not so obvious, but I think it's clearly George II. George I, we, the city hasn't expanded from the cathedral to this end so far. George III is too late, so it's got to be George II. It's got to be a tumultuous time for Britain when Bonnie Prince Charlie comes through Manchester and people support George in the end and he wins, so possibly it's associated with that. Certainly it's here on maps by 1750, so it must be George II. So it can't be after that day anyway, can it? No. Fine. Unless, presumably, that other kings would then take credit for it, possibly. Well, well, that often happens. I mean, because it's so vague, King Street, there's a Queen Street as well, just off Deansgate, and that's, again, a bit of a mystery which one it is, but it, that's probably probably George III's queen, actually, but this one's... I'm going to go for George II. Go for George II, the one before the mad one that everybody yeah, knows yeah, about. Yeah, and the last English king to fight in a battle. Of course. And was there a spring for spring gardens, and how long did that run? Th there was indeed a spring for spring gardens. That was the fresh water supply for Manchester right until, really, the end of the 18th century. And so it would run in a conduit from spring gardens down to the marketplace, which is basically sort of where Selfridges and Harvey Nichols is, that sort of area. And it ran in a conduit, and down there there was a big, well, a pool, basically, a fountain, and people would get their fresh water from there. And when Charles II was crowned, and people... There was an auster austerity regime in the 1650s called Cromwell, or run by Cromwell. And when Charles II was crowned, there was a big celebration, and they put so much wine into that that uh, people could drink red wine out of the conduit, or claret, as he said. That was the freebie for the people to It was a freebie, it. yeah, yeah. It was Fountain Street and Spring Gardens. Like I said, this was our fresh water supply. So, without being too cynical, in those days, uh, water attractions in the city actually worked, did they? Uh, well, they had one, and that one worked. It had to work, otherwise people would, people would have to drink the river water, and there's a lot of other stuff in that one. I mean, if you think about it, it's interesting about King Street, is that it has sort of been levelled out on its way down to the River Irwell, it was actually really quite a steep street, much steeper than it is now, and it's been levelled over time to make it a shallower steep uh, street. It's still a hill, but it's nothing like it was. And then looking at the buildings all the way down, uh, you'd have to assume this is one, always one of the most prosperous areas of the city. It's the only place really in the city centre that never went through that classic city prosperity, then decline, then split into smaller houses, then maybe gentrification. This has always been upmarket and wealthy. Originally, there's one house that survives on the lower end of King Street, Peter Waring's, Dr. Peter Waring's. And re really, the whole street would have been very, very grand Georgian townhouses, like between the cathedrals in Liverpool that still survive, or in Bath. And Manchester is deeply unsentimental, or has been in its history, so therefore, as soon as they got in the way, they were all cleared out for commercial premises. But they were equally prosperous. But we managed to save a few up up this end of King Street, particularly. Oh well, well, I think it's still one of the grandest streets in some respects in uh, in Great Britain. Uh, you've got some remarkable buildings here from different periods, but nearly all commercial, with the exception of one. I mean, looking out the window here, you've got the well, you've got two buildings staring at each other. One from the 1930s, which is Edwin Lutyens' 
beautiful Midland Bank, bank which is now Jamie's, Jamie Oliver's restaurant and also uh, Hotel Gotham, but that's from the 1930s, very much the last blast of utter British imperialistic style architecture. No lack of confidence in that whatsoever. Indeed, on the inside of that, you've got columns with Delhi bells on. Uh, Lutyens did the whole of New Delhi, and that capital on the top of a column is unique to his architectural design. It's his stamp. Uh, remarkable building in some respects, mathematically as well, if you like your mathematics, you can work out how that's built. It declines in thirds. And then across the street from that, you've got an 1871 building. So it's it's 50 or more years older, and that's high Victorian, Venetian Gothic, lots of different coloured stonework, elaborate sculptures, and significant for a couple of reasons. One, that is the only non-commercial building at this end of Deansgate. Uh, Deansgate, what am I saying? King Street. This is uh, a building that was built for the Liberal Party, so it was a reform club when basically the Liberal Party was ruling the roost in Manchester and had done through most of the 19th century. In fact, John Bright, who frequented that building when it just opened. He didn't have long left, but he frequented it. Um, he did say at one point that if you can find a conservative, conservative in Manchester, then you need to put him in a glass case and display him. Things don't change a lot. <laughs> well, they did for a little bit. They, they did for they? a little bit. There's, there's, been, there's been bits and bobs have changed, but now since the council is completely composed of 95 Labour councillors and one Liberal councillor, then maybe you could do say the same for a Conservative. I, I was lucky enough in my first office in Citico to have an office within what was the Reform Club. Mm. And in fact, my, my own office was the old library where yeah. John Bright wrote his speeches. And yeah, yeah. I used to take great delight in... Um, uh, when talking to councillors, reminding them that they were sitting in the room where free trade, free market capitalism was effectively invented, exactly, or at exactly. least well, proselytised. Yeah, I, think yeah, would be well, I mean, John Bright actually and Richard Cobden, I thought it was very deeply moving that all the, the, the carpet of flowers went around jo uh, Richard Cobden, who was his best mate, John Bright's best mate, and a liberal as well, uh, in St Anne's Square, because those free trades has been, the free trade principle of, from Manchester has been much misinterpreted, and Cobden wrote in 1846 that free trade would lead to the end of mighty empires and mighty armies because we would we'd sidestep the nation state and we'd just trade freely with each other because we couldn't trust them. And Cobden and Bright, with plans that um, were made in the old Liberal Club, not this one, this is a later one, uh, they came up with the Cobden Chevalier plan where when Britain was threatening to go to war with France in the 1850s, they went along to France and they, instead of getting a war, they came back with a trade treaty, which for the nice middle class of Britain was a good bonus as well because it meant that the price of wine went down. So it was all those things. Well, another thing, very important point about that building is that it's by Edward Solomons. Uh, Edward Solomons was the first major British Jewish architect, which points to that idea of Manchester's acceptance of different communities. So he'd risen up the ranks, so to speak, and built many prominent buildings around Manchester, the best of which is the old Reform Club. And then I suppose at the end, you've got the old Lancashire and Yorkshire Bank, which falls in between the two dates uh, by Charles Heathcote. And he's prolific down King Street. He's got the old Pars Bank, which is now Brown's Restaurant around the corner. And at the other end, he's got Eagle, the Eagle Star building, which is another one of his buildings. And Charles Heathcote is one of the great, and also the old Lloyds Bank building, 53 King Street. He was a prolific architect around the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, and, and very, very clever with commercial architecture. And of course, that building, Lancashire and Yorkshire Bank, spanning across the Pennines. How sweet. Has a lovely red rose and a white rose in it, in stained glass.
and in a delightful um, symphony of history. Uh, of course, Heathcote's building stands next to Legend's building. Legend's first yeah, yeah. Um, major commission was called Heathcote, which is in my hometown <laughs> yes, of Ilkley, yeah, yeah, of which course. is also yeah, in Yorkshire. Yeah, my yeah. my favourite story is Heathcote as a young man uh, designs for a stuff merchant called Hemingway this wonderful new building called Heathcote. Um, <laughs> Hemingway is a no-nonsense Bradford stuff merchant, says, I don't want any of that marble nonsense. I won't do the accent. I can do the accent, but yeah, I won't right. do it. I don't want any of that marble nonsense. Um, and Legend says, oh, that's a shame. Two years later, it opens. There's a huge black marble staircase. Yeah. Uh, Hemingway hits the roof. I told you I didn't want any of that. Don't you remember what I said, says Lutchins. I said, that's a real shame. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Came, yeah. He never, yeah, yeah. never lacked yeah. in confidence, I think, Mr. Lutchins. No, Lutchins never did do And I think, it, well, that building next to us, the Midland Bank, absolutely shows that. There's a certainty to it. There's a boldness to it. And he was an utterly confident architect, and he, he, he displays that as well. Although this is a nice building that we're in here as well, the Atlas uh, building, which is, again early 20th century, it's not as old as the uh, old reform club. And this is by uh, a Waterhouse, uh, Alfred, the great Alfred Waterhouse's son, one of his sons who made good, and this was for the Atlas Insurance, and it's particularly enlivened by that lovely large figure of Atlas carrying the world upon his shoulders. So every building as you walk down the street's got something, something about it. Even the modernist buildings on the far side, I think, have got some, some merit and virtue. Now, I, I heard a rumour, and you can confirm whether it's true or not, there used to be a house on top of the Midland Bank? Um, well, it's uh, well, when, it, when you say a house, it was uh, yeah, it was security and guard cha uh, security chambers that could be used to host guests in, 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 in extremis. But I don't think it was a regularly used day-to-day -day house. No. Oh, that's a shame. Just had I this know, wonderful vision of somebody living up there. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and, you know, when, every, when all the bankers went home, this caretaker would be able to oh, yeah, no, streak yeah, down the corridors effectively. Well, actually, it wasn't just that, that building. I mean, before the resurgence, you know, after the... Before World War One, really, World War Two, basically all the city centre population is denuded, is taken away, apart from pockets of working class population, say down by Castlefield and in Spinningfields, which is Spinningfields now. Uh, but there were caretakers. So that, that, that after World War Two, the only population are resident caretakers in the in the tops of buildings. Town hall, Refuge Assurance had a flat, for example, for the um, for the caretakers. So that was our population population for a while. I think there's definitely a podcast to be done on, on the hidden homes of post-war Manchester. Well, I w <laughs> do you know, I wish I'd, I, I have asked desperately around as a tour guide to see if any survive, and I, I can't find one that survives at all as a house, you know. It's a then, shame. Then there were the houses on top of the Arndale, but that was a bit later yes, as well. Yes, that was it? a little bit later, yeah. Okay, um, so moving down the street, Obviously, we now think of King Street really as a retail street yeah, um, yeah. And, and has been for a, for a number of years. So when did that evolution to retail start taking place? Very recently, really. Um, it was known as the Half Square Mile, the King Street district, because of the square mile connotations of London's financial and legal, legal centre. And really, what you're talking, the last 15 years, I'm trying to remember the, when the first, one, first shop actually came in. It was Armani, actually, in here, probably, was the big breakthrough. 20 years ago, maybe? Maximum 20 years ago? No, it's not even 20 years ago, I don't, I don't think, or maybe around that time. So, yeah, it has really been with the, well, with banks contracting, shall we say, and trying to get loads of staff and putting them elsewhere in the world, maybe, then those bottom floors have become available, and it, uh, well, it's a completely different street. And what about further down, with more retails? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how the streets evolved all the way down. So, and I think this is a national evolution. It's not just based in Manchester. It is that turn into city centres as massive leisure places, places of leisure and recreation where you come out in rather than necessarily uh, do your day-to-day -day 
shopping and jobs in. So you can see it down in the lower end of King Street how restaurants are coming in and bars are coming in. And in the end, it's funny, you know, when I first used to come into Manchester from Rochdale, I live in Old Trafford now, but, and I have done for the last 20-odd years, uh, 30 years, ah, time flies by. But when I used to come in from Rochdale, it was very exciting. I was like 12 years of age, and we'd go, I'd just go literally to Sheraton Hughes, which was a bookshop in St. Anne's Square, and Wilshaw's, which was a bookshop on John Dalton Street. And when I got a little bit older, I'd then come to bars in Manchester, and you'd walk the full length from Victoria Station to, say, going to the Hacienda, past Albert Square, no pubs open, no restaurants open. It was astonishing when you think about it. Um, and that's because back in the Victorian times, all the bars and restaurants were sort of all off down the side streets because the commercial value of properties on the main streets was so high. And thank God now we have this situation where visitors can come to Manchester and readily find food, drink and amenities such as this. So in some respects, it's a shame that the banks have contracted so much and there aren't those jobs here with those nice long-term contracts. But in another aspect, it's good for the amenity of the city that we have this variance all the way down. You know, even the, the Jack Wills building, which is a shop now, was a bank, and that's why it survived. It's a 17, uh, very early 1730s building by Dr. Peter Waring. He, he built that, and then it becomes a bank in the late 1700s, and that's why it survives as a, a Georgian townhouse. And it's good, that, because it does give you a picture of what most of this end of King Street was. So it's good for being a tour guide, because you can say, listen, listen, there were the grand Georgian townhouses, and that had wings as well on each side of it. Just like where... Uh, Lloyd's Bank is, you know, where Lloyd's Bank is, which is now 53 King Street, where Z's is in, um, then that beforehand, it's had three incarnations really, before that it was, well, not that building, so the building prior to that was demolished, which was Manchester Town Hall, the original Manchester Town Hall, and you can still see part of that, which is at the end of the Boating Lake in Heaton Park. And before that, it was Dr. Charles White's house, a Georgian townhouse, before it was the town hall. And that's the man who created what we've got down Oxford Road, which is the hospitals, basically. Manchester Royal Infirmary in Manchester, well, and St. Mary's Hospital. Incredibly important street. So going back to the 17th, early 18th century, this was a very domestic place, but for the really wealthy, the, the real strivers and drivers of the city. It's a remarkable time, that, actually. It's an underrated time in Manchester's history, because often I think... I mean, one of the, 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 the most commonplace misdescriptions of Manchester is that it is a Victorian city, which is absolute nonsense, really. It's a very much a 20, 20th century city, for one thing, uh, but also it's a city of the Edwardian period, and also it's a city of the Georgian period as well. So all these things are, are, are in play here, and you can see clues about it all the time. When this first develops, if you walk to Albert Square, you're in meadows. Uh, in fact, the town hall imprint is a triangle. And if you look at the old maps, in, in fact, if you look at the 1750 map, that triangle is a triangular meadow. So the town hall follows the imprint of a medieval field pattern. And it's interesting that, you know, King Street literally was the edge of town. So when the crammed medieval half-timbered buildings that have all largely gone, apart from one pub, around the cathedral, the rich then moved to more salubrious places on a bit of a hill in a way, outside. It would have, Manchester would have looked like Ludlow in the 1750s, or Richmond in, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, in Yorkshire, or Kirby Lonsdale in Westmoreland. It would have looked like that. Thank God it 
we changed. We had greatness visitors, and now we're a city of 25 Nobel Prize winners, so I'd rather have the greatness visitors than the but cuteness it, stay. But it's one of those classic things, because I think exactly the same thing on a much smaller scale yeah. happened in Leeds. Everybody lives in the, in the middle of the city, yeah. um, puts money into factories, suddenly realises what factories cause, yeah, yeah. and decided they want to move a long way out, yeah, yeah. whereas, of course, the poor, poor people who actually work there yeah. have to live in the middle of environments, don't they? It's worse in Manchester, in a way, because you then have the first railway system developing here, and so you get commuting coming in so people get, get even further out you know it becomes a ring seven miles away often of, of wealth i mean first two or three miles away in wally range in victoria park then it moves down moves moves out further and further and that's why charles rowley a great man of manchester in the 1890s who stayed in ancoats and created the ancoats brotherhood which brought art and culture to ancoats said that if the devil um, if God made the country and man made the town, then the devil made the suburbs because then people got a lack of, they got a disconnect between their own poor and their own city. And I think it still stands that phrase. And bringing us back to King Street. Oh, yeah, let's talk about, uh, King, let's talk about the King Street. So you talked about the, <coughs> excuse me, Jack Wills building. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we walk down the street in that direction, um, what other remaining outstanding buildings are there? Well, well, I think it's interesting. If you look on the other side from the Jack Wills building and just look at the buildings as they fall, everyone has now got... Because it became such a popular shopping street, really upmarket shopping street, ironically, as Oldham Street did for a while. It's not anymore. Uh, but it became such an upmarket shopping street. Then the facades of Georgian townhouses, one actually still survives on the other side, were turned into retail outlets. So... But it's still the same footprint of the Georgian buildings. And El Gato Negro, for example, the front is a, a retail outlet that's now turned into a, sh uh, a restaurant, but the back is a Georgian townhouse. Literally just exactly the same building. Did, did that process to retail in that area of the street, did that sort of happen in the late Victorian era? Or was it wasn't already like mid-Victorian mid period. So we're talking like from 1850s onwards. And, well, there, and still there were banks onwards. surrounding at the time. Though. Pardon? There were still a lot of banks surrounding at the time, and then the rest of the street was turned oh, into retail. Oh, oh, absolutely. Well, well, there was still quite, there was still quite a lot of people living on King Street in the early part of the nineteenth century, um, and then, well, consumerism in a sort of way started to rise up. I mean, you've got Kendall's House of Fraser, which begins in the eighteen thirties as the Bazaar. So really, it's that time when there's a lot of middle-class money, so to speak, percolating around, where you start to get the stores, the real, the real. There was always shops, of course, you know, you could buy a saddle, for example, or whatever, and your mail clothes and this, that, and the other, but certainly it's the rise of, in Manchester, it's a bit earlier in London, of the middle-class strolling lady buying garments and just looking in shops, looking at, you know, literally what we've got now, uh, going for a window shop. Which you can still imagine in King Street. To be yeah. honest, it's, it's created yeah. as a boulevard, or it feels like it's created yeah, as a yeah. boulevard to walk down and look but, in well, windows. It, well, it... it, it, it it's deliberately, it, it, stay, it keeps its narrow character. This upper part of King Street, to begin with, was just as narrow if you look on the old maps. So there was a little bit of a late Victorian idea, really from when the Bank of England starts, to widen it, to, to push back where the pavement line is. Uh, whereas the other King Street, because it develops a retail character, you don't want that. You want it intimate. Because actually, there was, uh, Kendall's was a breakthrough. It was this department store. Now, there's many, you could argue it was the first department store in the world. I think there's another couple that could argue about that in Paris and other places. But um, that was really the first one that brought all the little individual concessions into the store and started becoming a department store as we'd know it now. Hence the name Bazaar to begin with, because it was based on some Arab idea that they thought, or maybe from India. Uh, but 
Those smaller units were all individual, independent shops, of course, and that's the way people liked it. And the whole of that area developed as those small independent units. And incredible success stories, you know. And even as people moved out of the city, it continued to be that success story in terms of retail. Massively so. And remember, when I live in Old Trafford and that bit around Trafford Bar Metrolink, for example, which is just at the top end of Seymour Grove, that was Bowden for a while. So that's why you have the cricket club there, the tennis club went there, which now has moved to Didsbury, and all those big houses. Dodie Smith was brought up in a big house on Chester Road there. She wrote uh, 101 Dalmatians, of course. Nice middle-class people. So they weren't actually that far out. So town literally meant town. So you'd get in your nice big carriage, and you'd come for your afternoon tea or your high tea somewhere in one of the cafes around here, and you'd shop. And the shop stayed open later often than we think. Funnily enough, it's like the art gallery when it first opened in the 1880s and onwards. Stayed up until eight or nine o'clock every night. And having worked in the cultural sector, it's taken us a very long time to get back to that. Well, point. one day, <laughs> and it's not nine o'clock; it's eight o'clock. Eight. Yeah, yeah. And and um, there's lots of lots of stories about you know the elegant ladies coming down and shopping in King Street. Maisie Moscow's novels, which are based on the Jewish community, she mentions King Street and coming shopping here and taking in the cafes like Menganeka, for example, that existed there a long time, taking tea there. So you've got to imagine in your mindset. And also it's interesting, because people live so close to the city centre, the actual day-to-day crowdedness of the city centre is sort of hard to imagine now. So every single day, like today, now, you'd have, this whole of King Street would be filled with people. And because people didn't live so far away. So even West, in, in a Salford or just an Ancoats, you think about the 60s slum clearances. Yeah, you know, I took 20, well, 200,000 people out of the central areas effectively and put them in estates eight, nine miles out of the city centre. So that population would just wander in and walk around all the time. And then they had horses as well. And and they had horses, which was a bit of a hygiene problem. But yeah, they... absolutely. <laughs> That's what you always wonder whether those have been uh, rubbed out of the photos of the period. You see lots of horses. You don't yeah, yeah, tend to yeah. see so much manure. Every now and then. Every now and then you do. And remember, a, a, a massive occasion down King Street with all the, uh, the banking houses that were down here and the shops as well was Tuesdays and Fridays when it would be high change or high exchange. So that's the big exchange days in the Royal Exchange. Or in boom years, you might have up to 12 or 16,000 people coming to the Royal Exchange to trade. So that meant every single cafe, and this was a, a global population because it was the centre of the global cotton industry uh, and many other textile variants as well. So you'd have maybe Moroccans in cafes, Indians, you know, Germans, whatever, the whole world who had money and business would have to come to Manchester to do that business. So you've got to imagine all these banking houses filled with a very exotic crowd and also all the uh, shops and restaurants like Mendingenecker I mentioned and the, the bazaar, you know, Kendall's would have been doing a rip-roaring trade. And that's why, and the wealth, really when these buildings were being built, the 1870s, 1930s, we're looking at these two again, the reform and the and the uh, and, and Lutchen's Bank here, the wealth in Manchester was astonishing when you think about it. Far more, and I don't want to put a downer on things, I know we've got a lot of wealth around now in Manchester, but far more 
in a global scale than we possibly can imagine now. Remember, next door to us, joined onto us, is Ship Canal House, with its beautiful statue of Neptune on the uh, crowning it. And Ship Canal House, well, the Ship Canal opened in 1894 because of a row with Liverpool, because Liverpool was charging our product so much to leave their harbour. Five-eighths of the cost of a bale of cotton getting to India was getting through Liverpool. So we had to build a Ship Canal for ourselves. But the equivalent price of that now would be something like 30, 40 billion pounds. Every penny came from Manchester or Manchester ratepayers. Can you imagine just saying, right, uh, London, you're dithering over that HS2, so we'll pay for it. And that's what Manchester could do. That was the money in the city at the time. Might be needed if HS2 is actually going to happen. That's the only thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll say London, forget HS2. We'll do HS3. We need that best, better. <laughs> so we're still holding out for jetpacks. I was yeah, promised yeah, jetpacks. Yeah. <laughs> um, King Street generally, I guess, uh, was in a bad place a decade, a decade ago, um, but has broadly recovered now. Uh, thoughts well, on well, the reasons? I, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's recovering. I think it's still got a little way to go. I would like to see more retail down the old retail end, but, you know, trends change, times change. It's very difficult to do that. And maybe the ownership patterns within King Street with very traditional owners down the retail end of King Street, and they're used to a certain maybe rent coming in. Maybe that needs to... People need to relax those a little bit, or maybe the future is as food and drink, because it could be a lovely food and drink street anyway. But the uh, it is recovering, I think. And I sort of I worry about the smaller towns. Actually, I think as Manchester city centre gets more vibrant, gets more popular, people like I say when I mentioned before, I grew up in Rochdale, and when people went out often, and if they lived in Rochdale and they had a bit of money, they went out in Rochdale town centre. They all come into Manchester city centre now. And uh, now that maybe is a little bit of a worry, but that's that's not Manchester's problem in a way. Well, it is. It's Greater Manchester's problem. Andy Burnham's problem. That that's who it is. But I think this street is. It, it, listen, it's got to be a showcase for Manchester, given the incredible history, but also the beauty of the buildings and the potential of them. So yes, it's definitely recovering. I'd like to go a little bit further, but you know. Wouldn't we all? And as everything happens in cycles, we're starting to see plans for residential and people actually moving back into King Street. And St well, Anne's already has people living in it. It is. It has. And John Dalton Street, hasn't it? I mean, I would love to see the old uh, NatWest Bank, which is hilarious in its own right, the NatWest Bank, the old uh, NatWest Bank there with graphene in now, uh, the restaurant graphene. I'd love to see that maybe turned into residential rather than or maybe keep it commercial, but I'd like something like that. I'd like that resident population right in the city centre. I mean, I love that bank because if you look at Lutchen's building or this building or the old Lloyd's bank they're made out of white Portland stone in fact you can walk around them and spot the fossils within them and I want to mention two points here uh, but when Casson and Condo were brilliant architects in the 1960s built this headquarters for the Nat West they well built it very much like a castle you don't know whether to bank in it or lay siege to it. And it's, it's an I, impressive... I get the sense you've used that line before. I have, I have. It's actually not my line, and it's not actually about that bank. It was actually the original statement by um, a Guardian journalist about the Arndale Centre. You didn't know whether to shop in it or lay siege to it, and the original incarnation of the Arndale Centre. And, uh, but he built it out of black Scandinavian granite. And when asked why, he said, well... It's a modernist building, but I want to have the architecture of good manners. People said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look around. And because all the white Portland stone buildings were black with the industrialised grime and smoke, he thought, well, I'll match them. 
which is remarkably short-sighted, not thinking that 15 years later we'd start cleaning them, less than 15 years later. So now they're resplendent white Portland stone buildings with this one black building in the middle there. But I think one other thing I'd like to mention is, and I would love this to come back generally in our commercial buildings, is if you look at the Midland Bank, you can't see it from this side, but if you went round to the, the Gotham entrance, the Hotel Gotham entrance, you'll see the beehive with the Manchester bees on it and then the globe covered by the seven bees from the coat of arms. This is a London-based bank putting the Manchester motif on it. Same with the Lancashire and Yorkshire. That's probably a bit more obvious because it was locally owned. Same with the Reform, that was locally owned. But if you go to where Lloyd's Bank was and go inside ZZ's restaurant and go inside the old banking hall and turn around, you've got the most beautifully mahogany, wooden-carved representation of the Manchester bees coming out of a hive again. And similarly in the windows and similarly throughout that building. And I find it interesting that those London concerns were very, were motivated to build a sense of identity within the city and, and relate themselves to the city. I don't see that happening too frequently now because, of course, maybe there's a distant head office somewhere else, but that was a distant head office. And I find that fascinating that banks that didn't need to do that wanted to say, we want to be part of Manchester. And I'd, I'd, I'd like that to be repeated in other commercial buildings. It's, it's interesting. I think there's a reflection of that slightly in terms of retail on King Street. Now, yeah. we're, now we're sort of back to where we were. I mean, you were talking about the, the floor plate of the buildings and how yeah. many of them maintained what they were. That was the, really the problem five, six years ago is everybody was thinking that retail was all going to be about big floor plates and consistent mm. floor plates. And actually, okay, as soon as the rents dropped a little bit, that helped oh, yeah. a lot. Um, actually, there are an awful lot of companies that don't want that. They want to be seen as rather more interesting buildings. And, and certainly what we've seen with a number of stores here, Kiehl's is a classic example. They've got concessions in quite a few of the department stores around here, but having a store on King Street is a really important thing to them for their brand and their label. And that's true of a number of the brands that are down King Street. They actually want to have that yeah. resonance with the history of Manchester as well as part of what they do. Well, it's a sense of place, isn't it? It's a sense of place. I think... I think there's always, in good cities and towns, always have a, a strong sense of place. And listen, the more the merrier. I, ju I would just love more of that sensibility coming in because the more of good operators we get down in that lower end of King Street, then the more footfall you get, of course, and it's a virtuous circle. By the way, just one last little thing. I'm looking at the reform, old reform building there. I do find it absolutely hilarious that the best gents' toilets in the whole of the city, beautiful green marble affairs, green sinks. People often go to Liverpool and look at the Philharmonic pub and say, oh, look at those fantastic marble toilets there. Well, the best, much better than that, are in the old reform club, but the only people that can't get into the gents now are the gents, because the toilets that the gents are now the fitting room for agent provocateur, the lingerie shop. So the only people who can see the gents now are women. Which I think is really sweet. Yeah, I was going to say that that wasn't the office toilet that we were using when we were in the offices <laughs> no, no, there. No. I have to say, no, no. <laughs> that, yeah. that had been put in like yes. um, Finally, uh, what's the future of the street? How do you see it evolving? Well, I think it should keep on what it's doing now. I think we need maybe two or three more. Uh, use some of the empty units down the lower end of King Street for two or three uh, more bars and restaurants. Because it's really interesting, you know. When you look at the maps, so I was doing a, a book recently and we were looking at the original site of Sam's Chop House, which was on Market Street. 
And you look at Market Street, even in the 50s and 60s, I mean, it had the most amazing Cardoma. Uh, modernist, um, Misha Black, one of the great modernist architects. Beautiful car dome there. It had Sam's, a pub. It had two other pubs at least. And so there were always was, in these streets formerly, a mix between food and drink and retail. Now, I think there was some planning thing that went on in the 70s, actually, that tried to get rid of all the food and drink in Market Street. I've got no idea why. It was just one of those bad mistakes. And I think this is... This is the future for King Street. Uh, it has to have that mix of retail and food and drink because people want that now. So it has to keep con continually developing in the way the market moves to a certain degree. Up here on the big end of King Street, the wide King Street, I think the restaurants are so big now that there's a, there's a slight concern that some of them might not be able to well, maintain uh, in, enough custom. So I'd like to see just one, one, more, one little thing up, up this end, which is a couple of maybe more independent restaurants on this end of the street. And I think that would be a little bit of heaven on earth then. And then we'd have the right blend of everything. And also, let's let all the offices. But I think it's... Listen, how can King Street not have a good future? It literally is leading down to St. Anne's Square, in a way. And St. Anne's Square's got St. Anne's Church near the Tower of St. Anne's Church. is technically the city centre, the very centre point of Manchester. So if, this, if King Street fails in the end, then we've got a big problem across the rest of the city. And with that, I think we'll leave it. Thank you very much, Jonathan. No, thanks a lot. Thanks to Jonathan. Thanks to Virgin Money Lounge for hosting us. There'll be more history coming up. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email at podcasts at cityco.com. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud or direct from the source at cityco.com slash podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes or SoundCloud, SoundCloud and pass it on. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>